Shalom, shalom, wonderful friends. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here today on this warm or cold uh, wherever you are, <laughs> if you're in Denver, like Ethan and maybe Gary, um, that no, oh, if like Ethan, you got snow. If you're like Gary, then uh, you've got some sunny frost. And Sarah, where are you again? I'm in Indiana. We had in snow. Indiana had snow. All right. And Eric is in D.C. Um, what's the weather in Eric? D in D.C., Eric? It's cold and cloudy. Cold and cloudy. Okay. All right. Very good. I think that's everyone. Cheryl, are you in London or are you in Phoenix? <laughs> I'm back. You're back. Okay. But I bet if you weren't back, the weather was cloudy. <laughs> oh, it was, it rained um, every day. Uh, it rained every, every day. day. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Right. Okay. Well, we could take some of that rain over here. Anyways, uh, how about Pittsburgh? Alex, what's the weather in Pittsburgh? It is cold and rainy, like cold usual. And rainy. All right. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, one secret many of you might not know about me is the music on in my office most days is meditation rain. <laughs> so we don't get enough rain in Arizona. So I play meditation rain in my office. <laughs> so, okay, friends, class number 26 of Pearls of Kindness. Minyat Mitchell, not placing a stumbling block before the blind. Lotitan Mitchell. Okay, friends, here we go. This is, a, on, I would say, on the shorter side of a presentation. Sometimes we have longer ones. And then um, a lot to discuss. So the Torah teaches you shall not place a stumbling block before a blind person. This transgression is generally referred to as lifne iver, meaning in front of a blind person. We are left with many questions here. What would constitute a stumbling block? Does the blind in this verse include others who are not? physically blind? If so, who? Indeed, Rashi applies this verse more broadly. Rashi writes, you shall not place a stumbling block before a blind person. Before someone who is blind in a particular matter, do not give them advice that is inappropriate for them. And so Rashi already sees this as an idea of misguidance, misguidance. The Rambam, Maimonides, goes even further. He says, similarly, anyone who causes a person who is blind with regard to a certain matter to stumble and gives them improper advice, or who reinforces a transgressor who is spiritually blind, for they do not see the path of truth due to the desires of their heart, transgresses a negative commandment. As it says in Vayikra, do not place a stumbling block before a blind person. When a person comes to ask advice from you, give them proper counsel. Okay, so Rambam and Rashi both think this is about etza. It's about counsel. It's about advice. Someone wants your help. You know more than them, or at least you see something they don't see, and um, you are in have a responsibility here. So it's instructive to note that the very first drama in the Torah centers around Lifne Iver. Anyone help me out? What is it? What's the first case of Lifne Iver in the Torah? The Torah relates. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts that God had made. It said to the woman, 
did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman replied to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the other trees of the garden. I think we have a slide for this. It is only about fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you are not going to die, for God knows that as soon as you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know to distinguish between good and bad. When the woman saw the tree was good for eating, and a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, and he ate. So, very interesting. Um, I look forward to unpacking that story together. Sorry for the technical difficulty. We'll be resolved soon. Um, but that is the first, generally considered the first case of Lifne Iver. Now, did the serpent know something they didn't know and misguided them? Did the serpent know no more or less than them, but simply wanted to trick them? So placing a stumbling block before the quote-unquote blind, as illustrated in the above narrative, can have devastating results, even to the extent of altering God's intended course for humankind. One area where we apply Lifne Iver, Iver is to theft. The Talmud teaches over here in Bava Metzia. Oh, good question, Eileen. Why does the snake entice Eve and not Adam? Well, we know what the misogynistic answer is, which is given throughout time, that women are easier to be tempted um, in certain regards. Um, and um, uh, or, or at least by this, because you might have said the opposite, right? Maybe the man has the control in the relationship so he can persuade her. Um, and so he should be tempted by the snake and then he should persuade her. But actually, she's the one who's capable of persuading him. Um, and so she is both the tempted and the temptress. Um, but why didn't the snake go after him? That's an interesting question. Because also, the less misogynistic answer is, is um, who wants knowledge? right? Um, she's the one who apparently is interested in eating from this tree of knowledge. He's just kind of following her lead. Anyways, let's unpack that story more later because I think it's a fascinating question. Those were just two, two little uh, snippets put out. Great, great question, Eileen. Okay. So it says over here in the Talmud, knowledge of good and evil. Yes, exactly. Um, and Rabbi Yehuda said, a typical shepherd is not accepted as a witness. Because a thief cannot testify, and a shepherd is presumed to act as a thief by allowing his animals to graze on other people's property. Right? So if you're not known as a virtuous shepherd, but just a typical shepherd, a typical shepherd apparently allows this. It's like the typical dog walker. Does the typical dog walker pick up after their dog? Or does the typical dog walker only pick up after their dog if they see someone is around? Right? Does the typical dog walker bring a bag with them? Do they look around to see if someone's looking or not? Right? I don't know the answer to that. That'd be an interesting empirical study. I know in my neighborhood, there's a lot of signs on yards that instruct people to pick up after the dog, which means uh, apparently there's something they're addressing in the community. Right? So anyways, here's the assumption in the Talmud about a typical shepherd, that they will allow their sheep to graze wherever they want if no one's looking. This is only true if the shepherd is taking care of their own animals, but not if he's taking care of the animals of others, in which case we assume that the grazing does not involve theft. For if you do not acknowledge that distinction, how could we give our animals to a shepherd? For it is written in Vayikra, do not place a stumbling block before the blind. So that's a very interesting case. Meaning, how can I lend my property to someone else if they will do harm with that property, right? Can I lend my sheep to someone if they are likely to steal, right, with my sheep? And so by lending them, I'm complicit in the crime. Now, that, that Talmudic case 
is going to get extended to a whole bunch of contemporary issues around complicity, right? When am I complicit if I give my stuff or give a platform to or empower or fund another who is engaged or potentially engaged in problematic behavior? We might wonder how as investors or business people or consumers, this might apply to us today. When we know that goods are produced through exploitation and theft, what are our new responsibilities in this interconnected global marketplace? And when one buys and sells stocks, may one engage with companies that are known to exploit their workers? Consider this teaching from the economist Mayor Tamari. Giving, selling, or even advertising goods that are harmful to physical, mental, or spiritual health, either because of the obligation on the buyers not to cause damage to their own bodies or because of their infringing the Torah's commandments, violates Lifna Iver. An example is the Isser, is the ban against the trade in cigarettes attributed to Rav Avadi Yosef. Jewish trade in harmful food or drink, drugs and pornography would similarly seem to transgress. Lifna Iver, you might say, oh, what harm am I doing with this pornography, right? I'm not producing it. I'm not exploiting the woman in this, right? But as a viewer or as a purchaser, right? Or so too, if I invest in the stocks of Marlboro, what am I doing in regards to lung cancer? I'm just trying to make a buck, right? But that raises interesting questions about Leifne Iver. Interesting that the attention was on, um, on Irving, uh, the Brooklyn Nets player, around promoting this horrible Holocaust-denying anti-Semitic film, but why isn't there more pressure on Amazon for still having that film accessible? Why isn't there more pressure on Amazon investors for still having that available? Now, some people might say, look, Amazon controls the world. Like, we can't do anything to stop Amazon from anything. Uh, even though Yasha Koach to Jeff Bezos for declaring he's giving all his money away yesterday. <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully he does that. But he has joined the giving pledge. He 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 had hesitated joining the giving pledge. But it seems he's now pledged to give away, um, you know, you know, ninety nine percent or whatever of his of his billions. I'm not I'm not holding out for uh, for uh, our our friend Musk over there. You know, I'm not sure Musk has uh, got such plans, but who knows? You know, what do I know about Musk? You know, what do I know? <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, apparently, you know, it, it, fill in the blank because this is uh, I'm not going to name what it is, but fill in the blank of what business we want him to buy next. Right. Whatever business you want to tank in society, um, maybe we should convince Musk to go buy that business, too. Right. So, <laughs> In any case. Um, so Tamari says over here that um, yeah, Fox News. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking, I leave, but I didn't say it. So <laughs> um, in any case, uh, uh, Tamari um, lays out for us really, really complicated questions about Leifne Iver. His application of Leifne Iver, harmful goods and services, seems to be rooted in the Mishnah. Here's what it says over here in the Mishnah. Just a reminder, the Talmud, written about 2,000 years ago, has two parts. The Mishnah, which is written for the like, roughly 0 to 200, and then the Gemara, which is roughly 200 to 500. The Gemara is a commentary on the Mishnah. It says over here in Avodah Zarah, we do not sell these idolaters, bears or lions, or anything else that is harmful to the public. We do not build a stadium with them right? Like a gladiator stadium um, where they will kill people in the name of sport. And so here too, we see, oh, hey, I need to pay. I need to make a living. Let me make a living however I want. I'm a bear seller. I'm a lion seller. I'm a contractor that builds stadiums, right? I don't care. Can't do it for these folks because these idolaters are, are, are vicious and don't care about human life and you will be complicit. How does that emerge today, friends? Well, as we shall see in just a moment with the Rambam, the Rambam, Maimonides says, it is forbidden to sell idolaters any weaponry. We may not sharpen weapons for them or sell them a knife. Chains that are put on the necks of prisoners, fetters, iron chains, raw Indian iron, bears, lions, or any other object that could cause damage excuse me, danger to people at large. One may, however, sell them shields, for these serve only the purpose of defense. 
Every article that is forbidden to be sold to an idol worshiper is also forbidden to be sold to a Jewish robber. For by doing so, one reinforces a transgressor and causes them to sin. Very interesting. So one of the policies in the state of Israel, of which I am critical of, is that there are not enough restrictions on arms sales to genocidal regimes. Right now, almost every country on the planet is guilty of that. Um, but I, I don't have much I can do about Russia or about China or about countries in Africa. But Israel is a place we can influence policy. And it so happens to be that sometimes the government turns a blind eye to manufacturers of weapons that sell to very problematic um, authoritarian, brutal regimes that are engaged in atrocities. And that is a case where one might say, hey, I'm just selling weapons. I'm not involved in warfare, right? I have the right to make my money too. And here we see the Torah says, Lifne Iver, that by um, equipping someone who we know has a history of problematic behavior with um, certain types of tools, that we ourselves are complicit. Now, once again, this becomes very complicated in contemporary times with a whole range of, of issues and um, ways that we might be doing such a thing. Lifne Iver also applies to the issue of taking bribes. The Torah teaches, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show favoritism, and you shall not take a bribe. Now, bribes are all over the place. Um, you know, um, I don't know if you saw the news, you know, yesterday around the Trump hotels and foreign governments that are getting kind of free services at these hotels. Um, and that's also the charge against Benjamin Netanyahu around around a, a gift that was allegedly um, accepted. Rambam teaches over here, just as the recipient of a bribe transgresses a negative commandment, so too does the giver, as it states, do not place a stumbling block before the blind. So once again, we might just think um, that one side of it is guilty, but it turns out, um, of course, according to Leif Naivir, that um, we have a responsibility. Furthermore, Leif Naivir can also apply to loans. The Talmud teaches, Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, who he, one who lends money without witnesses presents, excuse me, without witnesses present, violates, and you shall not place a stumbling block before the blind, right? Well, what's going on over there? Lend money without witnesses. Well, by not taking certain legal precautions, we make it easier for people um, to have contentious issues, uh, to raise, content, you know, or to engage in fraudulent activity, right? Having transparency, having accountability, going through legal processes is not only about protecting oneself, but about setting a societal precedent. On this verse, Rashi explains, violates leaf naiver means in that the borrower will be tempted to deny the debt, right? When we create conditions that opens up a, tempt a temptation for another, we um, we have engaged in leaf naiver. It would be like me putting a bag of lollipops on the counter where my four-year-old is around and being like, I'm just leaving the room for a few minutes, right? And then I find him hiding behind the bed with a lollipop. Who's in trouble, him or me, right? Because <laughs> I did leave Naiver. Now, I'm not accusing my sweet four-year-old that he would take the lollipop. I don't, I don't know that he would. But, <laughs> but if he did, it's my fault. Professor Hershey Friedman writes, mortgage brokers who counseled poor people to take on mortgages that they would have no way of repaying a few years down the road, and because of their own greed, not even warning customers of the potential dangers were clearly violating the principle of leaf nay ever, right? The 2008 housing crisis. But we needn't be responsible, and, and it might apply today too, when you have 7% or over 7% or 6.5% mortgage rates, and there's so many complexities to different mortgage deals one can engage with, and people having no idea 
what it looks like to get in that on the promise that don't worry, you can refinance in two years, you're going to get a 3% rate. And that person has no idea what the trends are going to be like, or what the future has, you know, has the promise, but knows that if it remains at 7% or goes up, that person's going to be in trouble, right? And do we have regulations to protect such people? But we needn't be responsible beyond reason, right? We don't have to be like super responsible beyond a basic level. The rabbis therefore place limitations on leaf Iver, right? We can't do everything. Here's what they say over here in the Talmudic tractate of Nidarim. Rav Ashi owned a forest and then he sold the forest to a house of fire, meaning worshipers. Ravina said to Rav Ashi, but there is in Vayikra, you shall not place a stumbling block before the blind. Ravashi said to him, most trees are used for heating rather than idol worship. So that's an interesting case. Um, yes, thanks, Eileen. Um, yes, the low introductory rates. Um, you know, also, what do they call um, a mortgage rate where a teaser, I think it's called a teaser, right? A teaser loan. Um, anyways, so, okay, so what's going on over here? Um, there's the case of selling a forest. To idolaters. Now, this is a type of idolater that we're not necessarily worried that they're going to build weapons from the trees, but they're going to worship the trees. And just like we want to prevent their violence, so too do we want to prevent them from worshiping trees in the in the Talmudic worldview. And yet Ravashi says, don't worry. Yes, they will worship trees, but the majority of trees they will use for heating rather than for idolatry. And so we see here a limit is placed to say, huh, what is the primary purpose this person is doing? Maybe the person buying weapons is 75% going to use those weapons for moral, legal, law, and order, and only 25% going to use them for problematic cases. How do you think about that case? Or maybe I'm going to buy a stock of a company that 80% does good. The really destructive things they do is only 20% of their business, right? Um, you know, or the like. So, um, and so what do we do with that? So similarly, and here we're going to conclude after this source. Similarly, the Talmud teaches, how do we know that a person shall not extend a glass of wine to a Nazarite or a limb from a live animal to non-Jews? Huh. The Torah says, and you shall not place a stumbling block before the blind. And behold here, the Nazarite or the Gentile could take the forbidden food or drink for themselves without assistance, and yet the facilitator nevertheless violates. You shall not place a stumbling block before the blind. No, we are dealing with a case where the two people are on opposite banks of a river, such that the Nazarite or non-Jew needs help to obtain the forbidden item. So, um... This becomes a famous case where um, um, where we see another limitation. So what's the first limitation on this concept of leaf naiver? If the primary purpose or the majority of use will not be problematic, right? Got that? What's the second case of limitation? It is where they cannot achieve their goal without you, right? Let's say... Um, you you are superfluous or you don't matter, right? You think horse betting is wrong because of horse cruelty, but you know what? Your betting is not going to change anything. You think the NFL is problematic because of concussions, but you go to the game anyways, right? Because your ticket's not going to change anything, right? Or the like, okay. Or someone says, go get me a piece of this, you know, uh, problematic food that had a lot of cruelty involved in it. And if you don't go get it for them, they're going to go get it themselves, right? You didn't make a difference. They say, okay, well, there maybe it's not such a problem. But the case where you're on the other side of the river, meaning they can't get across the river, they can only get this thing from you, right? The genocidal regime can go buy their weapons from China or from Israel, same price, they're just coming to you. So maybe over there, it's different. Because they're going to get it anyways. Better Israel make a buck than China, one might argue. On the other hand, let's say Israel has the weapons no one else has. Or Israel has it for a lower price. I.e., you're on the other side of the river. They can only get it from you. 
or uniquely get it from you. There, the prohibition stands. Okay, so how might we, to conclude here, how might we also extend leaf naiver toward a basic kindness orientation? Perhaps by realizing that each of us has our own blind spots, right? Each of us has our own blind spots. We can choose to exploit or mock another's blind spots, or we can help them gently to recognize those blind spots. We can build trust and care for one another by helping each other see what we may not be able to see on our own. Just as God restores sight to the blind, so too can we and must we emulate the divine by helping others to see what they cannot but what is in what they cannot but what is in their benefit to see and understand in order to protect themselves and add dignity to their lives. Okay, so friends, thank you so much. I want to open up the conversation and on a number of levels there's the technical legal level of what is this category of leaf naiver. Then there is the the capitalistic slash legal slash um, moral complicit question in society today. And then there's this kindness issue around helping other others to see um, their blind spots. So let's open up the conversation. Hello. Hi, Cheryl. Um, one could say that uh, there's so much polarization right now in um, our politics, just coming off of, well, we're still not over, we're, we're still not finished with the election here in Arizona. But one could say that um, it would be kind, we might envision it as kindness to try and steer someone who seems to be misguided or whatever, <laughs> um, uh, to uh, see the other side or our side because they've been blinded by either false advertising. I mean, but whatever, whatever, false claims, false, you know, just, just that kind of thing. So, but if you extend that kindness and you say, I'm going to help you see the light kind of thing, um, you know, it might, uh, might not be appreciated. Great. So Cheryl raises a great question around what we do around people who are misguided on on matters of enormous uh, political relevance and moral relevance um, when elections come down to just a few thousand votes or a few hundred votes or uh, really down to the wire. And um, and I, I, now I'm going to bracket the, the larger system of ethics and just hyper-focus on this issue of Leif Naiver. According to Leif Naiver, one might say, you don't have to intervene randomly, right? Like you happen to pass someone who you see believe something that is misguided. That doesn't mean you have to intervene. But what happens is as soon as you have some skin in the game, right? you're in the conversation, your money is involved, your, um, your, your counsel is sought, there we might violate leaf naiver. And so what happens when we're at a dinner conversation with a group of friends and someone actually, um, you know, is an election denier, right? And, um, but not one that is absolute, right? Um, can't be talked to, but one that is someone that does have some level of reason, you might say, but nonetheless still thinks this. And because of that conclusion might, um, you know, engage in some problematic, you know, behaviors or spreading of false knowledge or someone who has false scientific knowledge or the like. And so what is our responsibility in those cases? And interesting enough, this case of Leif Naiver, as we're seeing it, is a little bit less around even that intervention. It really seems to be more involved in goods, in money, and in actively tempting another towards that towards that side, right? Um, so maybe a case would be um, if you knew somebody um, was completely misguided on facts and yet you were trying to promote get out the vote, could you also, you know, give voting information to that person knowing that, you know, um, that, you know, they are a misguided, uh, they're misguided in some matters. And there from a legal perspective, get out the vote, participants have to hand out things to everyone, not just the people they like. 
But from a Leif Naiver perspective, you might be enabling someone. Enabling is really the key word here. And so, yeah, Cheryl, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think it's of, um, of extraordinary uh, relevance. Um, let's say you um, own a social media company where you give a platform to people who spread misinformation. One might say, hey, I believe in free speech. Free speech is God. Anyone can say whatever they want. You can hate on people. You can spread misinformation. Or you may say, this is going to be really hard and really messy, but we're going to have to have some regulations. We believe in free speech, but not when it puts others at, you know, um, you know, at risk. So I don't share any follow up on that. I think that a lot, I think with, in a lot of cases, it's because people get their information from different sources and they align themselves with the source that says the things that they want to hear also. And so, I mean, this probably, I, I say that about every campaign, this was probably the ugliest. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, in, in, in Arizona specifically, um, but just this, the, the things that came down um, on the different channels that we listen to or watch, um, that is misinformation to someone who does not watch that channel. I mean, it, it's just that you can find what you want to hear. You can find, that's why there's, I guess that's why there's MSNBC and there's Fox. You know, you can right. find what you want to hear and what you believe and you don't feel, you know, I, I wouldn't feel that anyone is putting a stumbling block in front of me because I'm, he, I'm listening to what I want to hear. Right. I, I'm, I'm listening. Yes, I agree with that. Um, I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just it's just a difficult because because of the proliferation of availability, uh, the availability of where you can find out information. You can find out any side that you, you that you want to find out. Awesome. And so, you know, that that's kind of a different situation altogether, um, as opposed to somebody putting something in front of you and. A lot of times, you know, like I said, initially, people don't want to hear it. Um, mm -hmm. It just takes me back to, I think, 2015 or, or before the, the 2016 election when Susanna Heschel spoke here mm -hmm. for VBM. Mm -hmm. And someone asked the question of, you know, I can't believe, uh, you know, my, I have friends who are, they see it all wrong. They're, you know, supporting this one as opposed to that one. And I can't believe that they're supporting them. What am I supposed to do? And her answer was get new friends. But not everybody is willing. I mean, things have uh, been exacerbated since then. And, and you know, it's not, it's, it's not always that simple of an answer. You could say that about family too. You know, we are family, you know, the, the, the dinner table conversation, like you mentioned, um, often does not go, you know, goes one, doesn't go one way or another. It goes like this. So yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just a difficult situation right yeah. now because of, because of how we disseminate our information in this country. Great, great, great. And you touched on a theme of our friendship from a, a few sessions ago, thinking about relationships and and what matters in those. And just to take the take it a notch down on this point of marketing, away from the politics, but towards just general marketing. There's a lot of leaf naiver potentially in the market marketing industry at large. I mean, if you look at how products are marketed. Um, and and look at pharmaceutical drugs, or look at over-the-counter drugs, and um, or or anything really um, that is marketed towards um, towards uh, one's well-being, where um, one the the average consumer really doesn't know right from left about the different over-the-counter drugs. They they also don't know that like that burger that looks so juicy you know, is going to like actually like give them cardiac arrest, you know, like, <laughs> like things like the way things are marketed um, is also a challenge uh, of not, not just total false, false marketing, but kind of an over an over promise um, of what something will do for one's, for one's life. And well, the actually just one, one more point, and I don't want to monopolize this, but, uh, but just one more point, And that was one of the propositions that was just on, on the ballot. And it was marketed in such a way that um, people, it was called, uh, it's something that uh, we were very, Stan and I were very much advising people to vote against. It was about the, um, it was called uh, predator lending. And that was all wrong. 
because the backstory behind the predator lending, if you don't know the backstory, then what you see in right. two words and like the, the average person might see two words and think, oh, well, then, you know, I, if I don't have to pay all my the medical bills are so high and if I don't have to pay them, no one's going to go after me if this, you know, if this passes and everything like that. Yeah. And we were advising to vote against it for um, for reasons that you're wrecking your credit and the, they don't tell you that. In the future, you might not be able to get credit um, or, or you know that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's just that that was a marketing, and that I, I think the whole political situation was a marketing situation. And I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> great, no, thank you, Cheryl. That's great. And actually, thank, thank. Um, I was thankful to your wonderful husband because had he not made a Facebook post educating me around that proposition, I wouldn't have known which way to vote on it. I'm always researching the propositions, looking for people I can trust to advise me because they're so complicated uh, for me, for me at least they're complicated. And and I don't understand the wording of it. And so I appreciated that. Um, so just before we go to Eileen over there, um, I'm gonna pick up on Ethan's uh, point in the chat, which I think is a really wonderful question. Um, uh, I wonder when not allowing someone to stumble over a block in front of them is actually detrimental to the person's learning, development, and growth. Does Leifne Iver discourage failure? Can failure be kindness? Um, so that's that's very interesting. I'd love for us to kind of engage with that. You know, the, it feels like the three most obvious realms one might think about such a question would be a parent-child relationship, a a boss or mentor relationship, or like a coach um, and in such relationships, we want to provide autonomy and space for people to stumble and to and to make decisions and learn from those. And when do we not show them a blind spot so that they can have their free space and make those choices? And when do we want to show them that blind spot? I've got a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm actually going to throw that back to y'all. I'd love to hear if anyone wants to wrestle with that because um, I think it's really fascinating. I've got a thought on that. Great, I, I think when I think about the the, the, the original notion, and I, I that's a very fascinating. I just like love it. But I wonder when I think of the original concept and things of learning development, it's about the ability and the capacity. And with children development, when you think of development, there is that there is the ability and the capacity to adapt. But I think the I, when I take about it, I think more like literally, as in the when there's lack of the ability or the capacity to identify. Um, the ability to grow and develop. Uh, uh, so I think that's where maybe that's more black and white, but I think that's where I distinguish the, t of the two is learning and failure means there's the ability to adapt, the capacity to evolve versus the the lack of the ability or the capacity to do so is where I, I would say literally is where that should not be done. Great. Great. I would add, I would add, I would add, an, add another category to what, um, what you shared. Um, as, as, as a way to think about this one, one question we might ask ourselves is, can this person know this or, or, um, and they're missing it or can they not know it? The other thing one might ask is how high is the risk, right? It can, this, what kind of damage can this person have? Is this going to ruin their career, ruin their marriage? Are they going to break a bone? Right. Or is this pretty low risk? Anyone else want to engage with that question? Yes, Eileen. Um, I thought of it in terms of parent-child. And from that perspective, you have to let your child stumble because that's the only way he or she grows. If, in fact, you remove all of the rocks from the child's path, the child gets a distorted vision of what life is about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So, so yes, you agree. There clearly are spaces. Um, and so, so what is the case? So like, where would people say we get into the gray zone? Like we have two categories we threw out already, but a case where we do want someone to learn and grow, but like, where does it become important enough for us to show blind spots? Like, like, let's say for example, here, here's a tricky one. Let's say your child's in a dating relationship. And you can see this other person is not just someone that rubs you wrong, um, but you think is actually really bad for your child, right? Now, your child might not listen to your advice, but when would you intervene and when would you not? Um, or let's say they're making a career choice, which you think is wrong for their personality, right? Uh, or for their disposition, or they're making an investment choice, which you've, you've been down that road, you know it's wrong, right? Like when would y'all say you should in intervene? 
Yeah. Oh, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm usually quiet. Um, I think maybe in that case, sometimes it depends on your child and how you think, what you think would be the best way to, um, to reach them, I suppose, because in certain cases, if you push too hard, it might have the opposite effect. And then they might say like, oh, well, now that you told me not to date this person or not to be friends with this person, I'm going to do it, especially because you told me not to. So it might depend on each individual relationship. Right, right, right. Like the serpent knew that Eve um, would go for that. But the, if it was if it was Adam, going back to the other question, maybe the serpent would have said, uh, don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. You don't want to eat that fruit, right? As opposed to saying, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, right? Because people will respond very differently to different things. So Alex's point is great. Like you need to know the person and what they're able of responding to and how they can hear you or or, or listen to. Just thinking of my own children, I know they will respond to advice in, you know, in different ways as well. So I appreciate that, that point. But just before we move on, anyway, Ethan, yeah, back to you. Well, I, Rabbi, I appreciate you engaging in this discussion. Um, I think I could go back and forth on either side of this. I, I do think about sort of the old sports adage of, is there such thing as a good loss? And in my book, the answer would probably be no. I would rather have a bad game and win and be able to learn from those failures in a win than losing and have to learn from that experience. Um, so I think maybe where I would come down on this is that if there is a block in front of someone, it should be our responsibility to try to teach them, to try to motivate them, to uh, educate them on how they can remove that block for themselves. But just by simply removing the block in front of someone else um, and doing it in a way that is, is blind to that person so that they don't understand for themselves why there may be a failure in front of them is probably the most effective way to both teach and develop that person while at the same time preserve the, you know, the intended outcome that, that we want in whatever mm -hmm. the scenario would be. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. Just one more, one more point there. And, and thank you, Ethan, for moving us this direction. And then we'll go to Eileen's new point and then to Sarah's. Um, what, that, that I was going to share that there may be a way to point out stumbling blocks without advising. There may be like less inter inter um, uh, less um, uh, less abrasive or, um, or lower stakes interventions where one might still say, "Oh, the decision in, in your path is not clear. I just want to share something I'm seeing that you might not see, right?" And um, the choice is still yours. I just want to share from my experience something I'm seeing. And I know I've been very grateful in my own life when people have done that, who have said, look, look, I, I still think your choice is unclear, but in solidarity, I want to just share something I'm seeing in front of you right now, right? And so um, that might be a, a, an interesting you know, opportunity for us to think about how to point out bl blind spots in ways that people really can hear in a way that increases wisdom and it deepens the relationship rather than um, pushes one away or makes it feel like I'm the wise one. I get it. You don't get it. Right. Um, now, sharing personal experience is another kind of descriptive rather than prescriptive way to be like, look, your situation is different than mine. Very different. And my yeah. situation is 30 years old. But I want to share something that happened to me 30 years ago and what I learned from that. And again, I don't know if it applies to your case, but I just want to share my story, right? Um, and that that can be powerful too. Eileen, over to you. Yeah, you had mentioned um, stocks and um, cigarettes. Oh, yeah. And I remember in my youth where smoking was advertised and promoted as glamorous. And if you wanted to be considered in the in-group, you had a cigarette in your hand. And I'm sure that the tobacco companies knew even then that it ultimately led to cancer, but it also led to increased sales. And um, I find it fascinating that 50 years later, most of us do not smoke. We don't want to be around a smoker. So times have definitely changed. 
And I will say this, the, the moral question now is, do you buy stock in a cigarette company knowing the problems that occur from smoking, even though the stock may give you dividends and may be a solid buy? Where do you draw the line? Yes. And here in ethics, thank you, Eileen. Well, there's the consequentialist and there's the, and there's the deontologist and the virtue ethics camp. The consequentialist is going to say, you know what? I'm going to make money and I'm going to be philanthropic. Who cares how I made it? I'm going to go do good stuff with my money. I'm going to take care of my kids. I'm going to like give some more tzedakah, right? I'm a consequentialist. Like I'm going to do more good with what I made. And the virtue ethics person might say, look, I am a person of integrity. And as a person of integrity, like I don't want to in any way be associated with this, even if I'm not going to tilt the scales. I don't want to. And those are hard questions. Sometimes all of us will choose to be consequentialists, engage in messy, problematic behavior where we're complicit because we think the gain is good for us and by being good for us will be good for people around us. And some of us are sometimes going to take a more purity approach of saying like, look, I don't know that how much I would influence this, but out of my values, I'm not going to participate. Now, picking up on the cigarette case, the cigarette case feels so obvious because of what we know today about cigarettes, right? But there's so many other harmful things. Look at mental health, right? What, what about fear-based marketing when we know that through the roof anxiety rates that people have in society? What about even things targeted towards kids that um, that might in increase. If you've got about 25% of kids struggling with anxiety and then you do things to raise sex. Now, what about underwear commercials or um, where the men or women are all very thin, right? Or very strong. Um, now that might seem harmless, right? Well, we want to sell this underwear and we want it to look attractive, right? And oh, well, well, what, what, we're going to be worried about offending People who are overweight, what is this PC culture anyways all about? No, but actually like eating disorders are real and um, the cons the body images people have are very real. And what does it mean to continue to allow a certain marketing culture that does indeed tempt people um, towards um, paths of, of, of unhealthy mental patterns? And so it goes on and on. And yet like, some of these things are easy to regulate. Some are hard. What is our responsibility around this? Okay, over to you, Sarah. So I guess I'm struggling with all of it because I'm wondering, when am I blind? When I'm trying to make this judgment about the stumbling block? Great. And who am I to say that even this person who actually may be truly physically blind does not know? I mean, sense-wise, I have a dear friend who is blind and who goes out cross-country skiing, who goes paddling in her kayak out on the lakes, you know, and managed to find her way back. So there are senses we have. And who am I to be the one who sees? As for how to approach those questions, our own curiosity, our own ability to pose questions is perhaps one of the better ways that we have of helping our own selves discern things as well as others. And when we proclaim truth and our own vision, I don't know that we're doing any of us, ourselves or another, any favors. Great, great. So a number of helpful points here just before Gary, this subtle point of, of how we pose questions rather than just declare or preach is definitely helpful advice on how we engage with others. And then this question of of um, uh, of also like, how do I know that that they don't know what I want them to know? And I think here we see on the technical level of Leaf Iver more about our behavior than our speech, like, right? If someone is an alcoholic, um, it's not so helpful to be like, hey, don't drink, right? That's not very helpful to say to someone, but I know I can't buy them a drink, right? It would be leaf naiver to buy an alcoholic a drink, 
right? But it's not my responsibility to preach to them because they're going to have to, you know, that that's not my role. There might be forms of treatment available or that we can, you know, or AA or the like. And then around this question of, um, or so too with the selling of weapons, right? If I say to a genocidal regime, I'm going to sell you the weapons, but I, I, you know, I want to convince you that, you know, you shouldn't kill all those people. That's like a really bad idea. I say, well, who are you? I don't know. But uh, I, that's not going to be very effective, but I can't sell them the weapons, right? Now, the question of when am I blind? And that's such a great question also, and dovetailing also with Ethan's great point earlier as well about, about how we all know we need challenges in our life and we also need some blindness in our lives, so to speak. Rabbi Nachman says that we can find God in the stumbling block itself, that God is the stumbling block, um, you know, he even says over there, that in fact, those challenges, I mean, some of them are so horrific that uh, it's hard to imagine divinity there, but others have been so, um, you know, foundational, informative for our own our own growth that it's hard to not see a, to see a divine hand there. And where when when am I blind is such a crucial question for us also to ask ourselves: What tools and relationships and channels of communication have I set up in my life to be sure that others are showing me my blind spots? Right? Do I have a therapist? Do I have a friend who points it out to me, right? Who do I ask my questions to? How do I ask my own questions, right? We should assume throughout the day, we have countless blind spots and need a whole bunch of assistance from community and from friends and from experts um, and spiritual practices to see such things. And of course, the most blind, the most um, common of blind spots is not anything external, but something internal, right? our own mental conditioning, our own habituation that have led us to see things a certain way that we actually can't see it another way. One of the things that happens in going back to anxiety, but it could be a whole bunch of other uh, other um, mental conditions as well, is when in, in inhibitory learning, when we are no not able to learn from something new because the past learning is too foundational, right? So you, so your 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 twelve year old says, "I know I'm going to fail this test. I know I'm going to fail this test. I'm just so nervous." Say, "Why are you so nervous? You got a B or A on your last ten tests." Is it? It's not about reason, right? It has nothing to do with the knowledge of the last ten tests, right? That the learning of those ten tests doesn't change the fact that this child has an earlier, more foundational learning experience that tells them they will fail, that tells them they're at risk, that tells them to be nervous. And we can't just give reason to someone with anxiety, like, don't be nervous. Here's the data why you shouldn't be nervous, because there's inhibitory learning. And so, so too, um, yes. And so too, like, we have to ask ourselves our blind spots within our own minds as well. Hi, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I agree with everyone, what everyone has said, but I, I guess as being a, a teacher and a mentor and having children and living in the same society uh, as everybody else with advertising and what have you, does it ultimately, uh, ultimately come down to uh, uh, free will that, you know, if you, ha you have mental illness and you go to a therapist and they say you need to do this, that, or the other, and you elect not to, then that that is your choice. And then in politics, if we elect to only see one side, uh, it, it's free will if you decide how you want to do it. Maybe that's so simplistic, uh, but, but also as you know, I'm in medicine and I, I teach and and I ha and I mentor. Uh, I can bring out blind spots and weakness in their in their training. Uh, and if the student or resident decides. To blow me off and 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 not do these things, then that's their free will as well. So uh, not not to improve what they're doing, or if we don't listen to advertisement that smoking is cool or what have you, uh, it is it is it you only could do so much, and we have free will. The the, the individual is going to decide that yes, I'm going to buy stock in uh, whatever tobacco company, despite them selling vaping to student, to teenagers. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I agree with everybody, but it ultimately comes down to the individual. We can choose this way 
or great. Or, I love Gary's. I, I love Gary's direction here because how do we in this whole conversation um, think about the free will dimension and the free society dimension? Right? Who do we want in charge of our information and 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 our choices? Right? Do we trust the common person to decipher? You know, and make and and make such hard choices. When do we want to choose education over legislation? Right? That we should educate more, but allow it to be more free society. These are crucial questions. Um, and I, I'm so glad you raised that. And and it pushes us to think like, yeah, like, do we want to outlaw everything unhealthy? Do we want to outlaw the promotion of everything unhealthy? Right? There's a whole lot of unhealthy things we all engage in, and we would choose to, right? We all have treats sometimes in our lives, knowing they're not good for us, and we choose to, and we don't want commercials to go away about those, right? Mm -hmm. And so too, like, um, you know, and so there's a whole bunch of other cases like that, you know, and I think that, um, so so there's that conversation. And then the other side of free will I want to bring up also is how do we as a spiritual imperative maximize our free will? We are not so free if we are conditioned and not choosing people. But if we increase our choicefulness, we increase the potentiality within our lives around the extraordinary potential of choices that are in front of us each day, right? We're not just buy this because I always bought it and go there because I always went there, but actually turn everything into a choice in an exciting way, not a paralyzing way, right? That actually is an interesting way that when we remove some of those blind spots that have conditioned us, we then can be more choiceful. And maybe that's part of the imperative rather than have government or marketing agencies decide what we can handle. So too, in the world of Jewish law, I don't like when a rabbi in, let's say, in the legalistic world um, rules stringently because the masses won't understand how to handle the complexity of a more lenient ruling, right? They'll, they'll just hear, oh, it's all good as soon as there's something more lenient. So they're going to rule more stringently because they can't handle it. And so there is one exception I want to give here. And unfortunately, we're at our time, but I want to read from, from this here. Um, one exception is, and this is important for us, those of us engaged in criminal justice work as well, is what do we do with psychopaths, <laughs> right? <laughs> unfortunately, there's not a lack of psychopaths in society. Let me read you a paragraph here from a book, The Power of Kindness, around psychopaths. It says, um, when those inmates with the highest scores for psychopathy imagine their own pain, the regions of the brain involved in empathy, including the right amygdala, anterior uh, insula, anterior mid-singulate cortex, and somatory sensory cortex, I batched some of that, if anything, psychopaths are more sensitive than non-psychopaths to the mere thought of being in pain themselves. Psychopaths are more sensitive to their own pain, according to this study, than non-psychopaths. But when the same inmates were asked to imagine the pain in others, the same regions failed to light up on the, on the MRI scans. Disturbingly, these psychopathic inmates showed increased activity in a region of the brain called the ventral striatum, an area known to be active when feeling pleasure. That finding raises the possibility that psychopaths enjoy imagining pain inflicted on others. So we might think, you know, let everyone have free will. And by and large, that might be a, a good rule and to think about how to educate and give have a free society. And then these questions emerge around people who are just hardwired differently around choices they make. Someone who cannot handle the information on how to make um, a certain moral choice or a consumer choice. Right. Someone who can't handle, um, you know, uh, being in a certain moral situation. Right. And so what do we do in those cases? Right. And those are really difficult um, for. And here's one of the cases um, with ex-felons. What jobs can ex-felons have who have have a violent history? Let's say an ex-felon has a history as a child abuser. Right. Can they be allowed to be a school teacher? Right. 
So many of us think in, in criminal justice work, we should make it easier for ex-felons to reintegrate into society, to not place more barriers in front of them so they can grow and not and lower the recidivism rate where they don't just end up back in jail. The more likely they are to get a good job, the less likely they may be to end up back in prison. On the other hand, right, it may be that some people, we put a stumbling block in front of them by placing them in a career or in a job or in a setting where they're more likely. Can, should someone who is an alcoholic be a bartender, right? Uh, probably not a great idea, right? So people are different and people need different, different things. So, oh, there's so much more to talk about. We're just getting started. But as always, I love learning from you all. Sarah writes, are these developmental changes to the cortex due to early and persistent trauma or, or congenital? Wonderful, wonderful question um, as well. So friends, I hope we'll continue to think about this, how we see blind spots for others, if and how we engage in that, how we see blind spots in our own lives, if and how we engage with those. And that is a political question, an economic question, a consumer question, a business question, a psychological and spiritual question. And it is a kindness question because... Um, we're going to have to figure out how to, um, you know, try to lead others away from stumbling when possible and how to not stumble ourselves in ways that may hurt ourselves and others. Have a beautiful day. Can't wait to see you soon. God bless.